Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, January 12th. Let's recognize some of the best journalism of the last year. Last night at Columbia University, they handed out this year's DuPont Columbia Awards for Excellence in Broadcast and Digital Journalism. Winners included ABC News for its expose of the plastics recycling industry, New Hampshire Public Radio for its investigation into sexual misconduct at a local addiction treatment network. The reporter even faced vandalism and other retaliation for her work. The six-hour Ken Burns Linovic documentary on PBS called The U.S. and the Holocaust and others that we'll mention as we go. And with us now is New Yorker Magazine contributor and Columbia Journalism School Dean Jelani Cobb, who presided over the award ceremony last night for these awards considered the most prestigious in broadcast and digital journalism. Some people call them the Pulitzers of broadcast news. Jelani, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. How are you, Brian? I'm doing okay, thanks. All right, let's play a clip from one of the winners accepting an award last night. Lauren Chulgin from New Hampshire Public Radio, got Mm -hmm. to give props to a public radio station Mm -hmm. that earned an award for its investigation and her investigation into sexual misconduct at a local addiction treatment network. The reporter, Lauren Chulgin, even faced vandalism and other retaliation for her work, as she references in her acceptance speech here. A lot has been written about the vandalism we faced, the lawsuit, as you heard, but and how dark of a moment it is for journalism to see that we face such repercussions. But I'm choosing to see this as a triumph. I'm choosing to remember that women chose journalism when they didn't have an answer to such a big, unsolvable problem. They chose telling us their stories when they felt they had no answers. They taught us that recovery is difficult and beautiful and that it obviously should not come, it should not be a time to be exploited. So, Jelani, would you speak about the content of Lauren Children's work as well as the retaliation that she faced? Sure. Uh, And so the 13th step was a a really really difficult uh, story uh, that Lauren uh, reported uh, just, you know, superbly. Can I I just jump in uh, and, and say to clarify for the listeners about the title uh, the 13th step. So that refers to a 12 right. step program. Yes. Mm-hmm. And here comes the ugly 13th unwanted step. Right. Uh, and so it had become a kind of dark inside joke to people, which was uh, that the exploitation and abuse uh, of, of people uh, who were in a vulnerable state uh, because they were in recovery and attempting to uh, to grapple with that problem uh, had become like a, a 13th step. So um that story uh, generated, uh, you know, a huge response, and in turn, uh, you know, the reporter Lauren Children uh, had dealt with vandalism personally, uh, dealt with being doxxed, uh, and dealt with being uh, subjected to a lawsuit, uh, which was ultimately dismissed. Uh, and uh, she did this all in the the effort of, of telling, uh, you know, what these women had gone through. Uh, in their attempt to gain their sobriety, and so that was what one of the things we thought uh, was really, and, and also, you know, the I should say the Dupont Columbia Awards uh, have consistently uh, had an eye toward local news, 
uh, and toward highlighting stories that you know really should get a much bigger spotlight uh, nationally. Uh, and so this story was really one of the important ones that we celebrated this year. And in that clip that we played of, of Lauren, um, she said, I'm choosing to remember that women chose journalism mm-hmm. when they didn't have an answer to such a big, unsolvable problem. And I wonder if you would take that cue and talk about the role of journalism generally, which we can too often take for granted, and, and why she referenced it like that there. Yeah, you know, Brian, I think that really applied for all of the stories in one way or another. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, the kind of through line were people who were in dire straits uh, and who generally hoped that telling their stories might bring some sort of change. Uh, and, you know, we had a, a story uh, from uh, ABC on uh, the aftermath of the Taliban, excuse me, the frontline story. Uh, on the aftermath of the the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan, uh, and women who faced like um, immediate physical consequences uh, for talking to a Westerner, for certainly talking to media, were still saying we're being abused. Uh, these are people who are talking uh, in front of you know hidden cameras and so on. Uh, the entire uh, interview having to be a kind of surreptitious interaction, and they really felt that the risk of being abused, beaten, or worse uh, had to be counterbalanced by the importance of telling the world what was happening. Uh, and so time and time again, you know, if we have doubts about journalism or if we're skeptical about journalism, uh, it's always important to hear the other half of the story, which is that there are people who are placing a profound degree of faith in journalism as a remedy for the problems that they are confronting at, the, at that moment. And I also think that that is a testament to the level of commitment uh, that you know, these journalists are willing uh, to, to bring uh, in order to make sure that these stories get told. I mean, Lauren could have uh, just uh, hung up her microphone and gone and done something else. Uh, that's not what she did. You know, she chose to stick with this story. And so I think that needed to be celebrated. And can I ask you, Jelani, to put on your dean cap for a second and talk about who you see these last few years coming through the J-School program? Sure. Uh, So, I mean, one of the things about the journalism school uh, here at Columbia is that we're an international institution. Uh, So we have students in any given year, anywhere between 30 and 35 states uh, that are represented in terms of our student body. Uh, And then we just represent it globally, you know, in terms of, you know, students. Uh, so we'll have students, you know, significantly from uh, from China, significantly from Japan, uh, from India, uh, from the UK, uh, you know, certainly to our, our neighbors to the north in Canada. Uh, and you know, like many institutions, like many graduate schools, uh, graduate uh, undertakings now, uh, we have, you know, a very strong representation of women uh, in the building. Uh, and so, and, you know, typically the majority of our student body uh, is female. And so I think the other through line uh, that I see here is that these are people who are not really daunted by the landscape. Uh, you know, they believe in, you know, the power of journalism. They believe that there is uh, a way uh, to make a difference in the world by doing the kind of work that they're doing. And I, I think that they probably, you know, temperamentally uh, are, you know, probably closer to the school of social work. You know, if you think about 
uh, the sense of wanting to do right in the world and to help the most vulnerable, uh, recognizing that it may not be the most remunerative um, undertaking, uh, but you think that there's something that's worthwhile uh, for this field. Uh, and I think that's been a kind of shared temperament uh, that we've seen. Willa in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello, Willa. Hi, Brian. Um, yeah, I'm a journalism student at CUNY Newmark. But yeah, I, I wanted to share that at first when I went into journalism, um, I've never had like an idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I just know that I'm really curious and I like to talk to people. So I was like, well, instead of being a bartender, you know, maybe I could channel that into journalism. But I had this really like optimistic um, kind of naive view of like, oh, if we all talk to each other, we'll all find some sort of mutual understanding. And that's kind of been shut down. I still want to believe that. But I think that mostly these days, I've just been inspired by um, the new ways that journalism is being shaped by people in my generation. I'm, I'm 23. And there's like Channel 5, Andrew Callahan, and other people on social media who create a lot of like content that's it's funny but it's also really stark um and like really draws attention to like the Mm -hmm. individual experiences of people and i think that that's really important especially like for our generation we are on our phones a lot but we do i think um have a really strong connection with humanity and like other people's feelings and a really great sense of dark humor so i kind of just want to um explore and contribute to that and also of course like i grew up listening to you so that's been a big (laughs) influence as well (laughs) i'm glad and uh that's really inspiring the way you're putting it out and also uh talking about the uh the little known bartender to journalist pipeline (laughs) well (laughs) thank you very much and good luck uh let us know when you get out jelani you want to say something yeah i did want to say something and and i would say to the caller um Please hold on to that idea uh, that she described as naive, uh, because that's what we're all holding on to. Uh, and you know, going back to the DuPont uh, Columbia Awards, that's what we were celebrating last night, that these stories, uh, which began with a simple observation, all of them, uh, and they culminated in uh, well-told stories that actually did make a difference. Uh, and so not every story does, if I'm just being brutally honest. Uh, not every story on that same subject does, uh, but enough stories that are done well enough actually do move the needle. Uh, and you know, aside from that, I'll say that uh, you know the the bartender and journalist profession, to your point, uh, share a whole lot more in common than I think people probably recognize. No doubt, uh, <laughs> talking to people and trying to make them one way or another loose enough to open up to you, right? <laughs> right um, exactly. Lisa in West New York in Jersey wants to comment on one of the winners we talked about before, uh, the ABC News investigation of what really happens to plastics that you think are going to be recycled. Lisa, you're on WNYC. Hello. Thank you so much, Brian. And I just want to say that my call is precipitated by what I noticed you doing recently, which is saying, uh, does anybody want to help report that story? And so you bring in the listeners to the reporters to, um, you know, to, to, to do better on the subject matter. Now, we have in this area, we've had um, groups working on plastics. Our local officials have told us, that's garbage, just throw it out. 
you know, because we, we get a lot of those newspaper bags and things like that. Just throw it out. Now, had we been invited to report the story, uh, the ABC could have done even a, a better job or Columbia University could have reported it or whatever. But I just wanted to kind of pull all those things together. You know, let's have people report along with the, the college students and the professionals, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for noticing, uh, which you accurately quoted, that I do sometimes invite listeners in by saying, help us report this story with your personal experiences. And that's, you know, our attempt to use a talk show, not just for people to spout off when they call in, but literally to use a talk show as an act of journalism and have the public that we have the privilege of being able to hear from by the, you know, the tap of your phone uh, to help report various stories. But Lisa, do you want to give us any particular detail about what you see happening in your community with plastics recycling that you would tell a reporter? Um. The local officials re- really aren't committed to the issue. Um, we we have a couple of recycling bins, but it's nothing like New York. Um, it's not even healthy, um, and people can't can't get to it and can't use it. But the thing what for me was I get all these newspapers and the bags say recyclable, and it and it's not because there's no place that will accept these. Uh, they're called sleeves, newspaper sleeves, and uh, they're, they're horrible, and they're going to last for how many years? So had we, and there is an organization here, uh, Beyond Plastics, so we're con- we're concerned about it, and we'd like to, uh, you know, make sure this doesn't end up in a landfill. If we could, if we could uh, have somebody say to us, help us report this story, you know, it could be even a better story. Lisa, thank you very much. Uh, listener writes in a text message, my son graduated from Columbia School of Journalism two years ago. It restores my hope for the future and democracy when I hear of the work the students are doing. So there's an A-plus for you and your crew, Jelani. And listener writes, I have a quick question for your guest. In a country where the majority of adults read at a seventh grade level, how does your guest see journalists' role in reaching a broad audience? Well, you know, I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, if it is that everyone, you know, on average reads at a seventh grade level. But one of the things uh, that, you know, is crucial and one of, I think, the virtues of, of especially print journalism has been that it is written in a way that is accessible. You know, that a person, and that's democratic, actually. Uh, that the information that people need in order to make decisions about their lives and most fundamentally make decisions about their government should be accessible to everyone. Uh, and, you know, when you're listening to a podcast or watching a news story, uh, when we say at the DuPont Awards, uh, the DuPont Columbia Awards, uh, you know, deeply researched and well-told, you know, the well-told part of it uh, means people being able to understand, you know, what's happening here. Uh, and so I, I really think that that's a virtue. Uh, sometimes we lament and we kind of wring our hands about it, but uh, that's one of the better things that we do. When I was in J school, there was a cartoon that got posted of an editor telling their reporters, eschew obfuscation, <laughs> which translates as avoid 
confusing <laughs> language. <laughs> In confusing language. So there's that accessibility uh, lesson. You could find that cartoon if it still exists and uh, post it at the J School building. Uh, all right, we're going to end on this. Ken Burns is still winning awards, I see, along with his filmmaking partner, Lynn Novick. Their six-hour PBS film was The U.S. and the Holocaust. Here's Lynn Novick from the award ceremony last night. We started this project back in 2015 in a very different world. As we were making the film, we all saw just how fragile our democracy can be and how important it is to tell the truth about our past. The series ends with a quote from Guy Stern, who passed away last month at 101. He was lucky enough to escape Nazi Germany as a teenager, come to America, serve in the army, and go back to help liberate Europe. And this is what he says. We have seen the nadir of human behavior, and we have no guarantee that it won't recur. If we can make that clear and graphic and understandable, not as something to imitate, but as a warning of what can happen to human beings, then perhaps we have one shield against its recurrence. Lynn Novick, who's not as well known as Ken Burns, but probably should be. They've made basically all of what we call the Ken, Ken Burns documentaries together. So what did Ken and Lynn add to our understanding of the Holocaust from the U.S. side of the Atlantic um, that led the DuPont Columbia Committee to give them this award? So, I mean, that's a really exhaustive, um, you know, examination of the issue. Uh, and, you know, you know, I, you know, delved into this uh, before I even knew it was in contention uh, and uh, was consistently impressed with, you know, their, their, the way that they elucidate policy, uh, the way that they elucidate perception, uh, and the way that they elucidate the consequences uh, for the actions or lack thereof. Uh, you know, for people to take uh, in the midst of the, uh, the Holocaust as it was unfolding. Uh, you know, one of the elements about this that is uh, unsettling historically and certainly unsettling uh, in the contemporary context because of the echoes was the great deal of sympathy uh, there was for fascism uh, and overt uh, anti-Semitism uh, in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, and so, obviously, uh, we have seen a resurgence of this and a kind of resurrection of some of those ideas uh, in, in the contemporary context. And so, uh, it really uh, is is just a, a stunning piece, even in uh, by Ken Burns' standards, uh, a stunning piece of work uh, that I think we thought really needed to be highlighted. Yeah, and that history of what was happening here at that time is one of the things that caused some European Jews to choose Israel or what was earlier British mandate Palestine mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. a safe haven. One of the many points from the many points of view in the current and ongoing Mideast conflict, and not to get into that again today, but this film is one more thing that directly or indirectly uh, feeds the complexity over well, there. Yeah, and, I'll, and Brian, I'll just add one piece to this. Like When we look at uh, the racist, restrictive uh, immigration laws that were passed in the United States in 1924, uh, you know, the, the Johnson Immigration Restriction Act, actually, uh, which set the quotas for the number of people who could come into the country. It was specifically meant to prevent, uh, you know, so-called undesirable populations from, from coming. And that has disastrous consequences in the next decade. Uh, that directly complicates uh, the attempt of many Jews who are fleeing, uh, you know, the rise of fascism 
uh, it, it prevents them from being able to find safe haven in the United States. And so that's absolutely uh, accurate from your what you say. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that we're planning for later in the year is a look back at that 1924 Restrictive Immigration Act in the United States, uh, because here we are at the 100th anniversary mm-hmm, of that, mm-hmm. and it had such um, wide-ranging effects on the United States from then until now, and we're seeing echoes, as I guess Absolutely. you were just indicating, mm-hmm. of the kind of rhetoric that was around in the early 20s here in these early 20s. So we will leave it there for today with Jelani Cobb, who is the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University and presided last night over this year's DuPont Columbia Broadcast Journalism Award Ceremony on the campus. Thank you for highlighting some of the winners with us, and I always love talking to you, Jelani. Thank you for coming on. Okay, take care. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.